Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I have a co-host, Paul Dantics, who I will go ahead and I will intro him later. I'm going to first go ahead and introduce our guest today, Miss Katie Gilbert. And I've tried to get her on for, God, it's probably been like eight or nine months now. And she's so, so busy. Uh, Katie is a defense attorney. And so we get to get a good perspective. Usually we we'll always have one side or the other, but this is our first time having a defense attorney on, so I'm really happy about this. Uh, Katie did her undergraduate degree at Notre Dame Demure uh, University in Belmont, so she's a local person in the Bay Area in Northern Cali. Uh, she has her BA in political science and psychology. She was a two-sport athlete there in volleyball and softball, and she got her law degree at Santa Clara University. Uh, she has her own practice now. And then I get to go into my wonderful co-host, who you have all heard before, Professor Paul Danzig from the USC uh, Price School of Public Policy. And he is in, the director of ed, uh, executive education in Sacramento. So hey, thank Mark, you. It's great to be with you today. Yes. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Katie, for being here, too. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to it. Yes. So here we go. We always start kind of the same way, just to get a background on, on a person and and kind of hear your story. And um, where were you born and raised? I was born in Redwood City, California, um, and then pretty much haven't left the Bay Area. So I guess my parents did a good job indoctrinating me. And, and what was your childhood like? Did you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I have um, three older sisters, one little brother. God bless my mom. She started when she was 19 and she kept going for my dad until she finally had a boy when she was 40. Oh my goodness. And what was your relationship like with your parents and your brothers and stuff growing up? Um, good. It was always pretty chaotic um, because my parents owned a lot of different businesses. They started at a really young age, their high school sweethearts. So they had, you know, my dad was a cop. My mom um, helped him run the businesses and there was just always a lot going on with bars and restaurants and hotels. They kind of apartment buildings. Um, there was always some crazy story in addition to the stories, you know, my dad would sometimes bring home from being a police officer in San Francisco. But it was it was a great, very idyllic childhood. I had every opportunity and a very supportive, very loving home. What was your childhood like growing up? Did you have any pressure to do well in school and what were your kind of thing, your activities and, and I guess some of the things you did growing up that you enjoyed doing? I was lucky to really love school. I was, I guess, a nerd in that way that I really liked going to school. Um, I was always pretty athletic from a young age. My mom had me in like every different sport, playing club, playing school. So I was really busy and I really enjoyed that and had a, you know, big group of friends from that. So um, I was really lucky. When you were growing up, what was it, what was your relationship like with your your other siblings? Uh, my oldest sibling, she actually was pregnant with my niece when I was three years old. So when my mom was forty, she was nineteen. She actually moved back in, and now when I look back, I'm like, this is so weird. Um, but uh, so I. I she she was almost like more of an adult figure to me, not necessarily like a big sister. Um, my little brother was only three years apart, so we were really the closest in terms of growing up together in the house. Um, 
there's never a time where all of us siblings are talking at once, but you know, we're just kind of a big, crazy Irish family. I think that's typical. <laughs> when you were growing up, what were the expectations like for you? I mean, did you have expectations to go to college? What was the expectation of your parents of you? They really didn't push expectations on me. Um, I think they were a little tired by, you know, number four. So they weren't really on me about that. It was just kind of a natural course. I mean, they set me up with really good schools and support. And I think it was just kind of an, not really discussed that much, but just expected that I would go to college and do things like that. Did you, who were your role models growing up or did you have any in retrospect? Oh God, why is the first one that comes to mind Drew Barrymore? I mean, I don't know if I had like the greatest role models. <laughs> um, I mean, creepy too. I think I I had a thing where I loved Ross Perot when I was a kid. I don't know why. I was really young and I just thought he was so cool. Um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I've always really idolized um, my dad. He's like a really fair um, mellow, calm under pressure, but very tough guy. And, and I think I've always had a, you know, a kind of a dreamy disposition towards my dad being our hero, that kind of classic thing. So why do you think that is? Um, just because of who he is. I don't know. I think he's a guy that gets that reaction from a lot of people. So it's only natural. He's going to get it from his kids too. Um, but I just always appreciated the way that he, was able to balance that, like being a really um, tough, strong person, but also just being really fair and really kind to people. Do you, do you remember any stories he might have told you that kind of resonated with you when you think about in the past that um, that maybe kind of gave you a, a sense of, you said your dad had a sense of fairness. And I think you and I have had discussions in the past and you said it, it's kind of shaped the way you look at what you do now. Can you recall any of those experiences or stories or just how he would relate with people? Oh gosh, are the statue of limitations up? No. Um, <laughs> so he, I mean, a story that just comes to mind is where he was talking about kind of going into Hunter's Point and the projects and they were shooting at officers as they were coming through. Um, and he was pretty fearless. And I've heard this not mostly from other officers too. And how he went in there and he just kind of went up to who he knew was the, you know, shot caller of the gang there and just had like a very nose to nose conversation with him about like what what was happening to the community and how people were being affected by this. And because um, it was a time where there was a lot of like gang wars going on there and innocent bystanders were being affected. And, you know, there were women and children in the projects who were getting affected by it. And he just you know, he just thought he was going to go straight to the source and have a, a conversation with him and show him he wasn't scared. And he also just wanted to hear like, what's going on? And do you understand like the impacts here? So I think stuff like that just made me feel like it's good to just confront things head on and try to find common ground where you can, even in a crazy situation. And, and when you were in high school, did you have an idea what you wanted to study in college? I mean, I know you're playing sports. When I was in high school, 
Um, well, I know when I went into law school, I was really focused on environmental because I thought that meant you could save the environment if you were an environmental attorney. And then I took one class and I was like, this is so boring. And it seems like it's so much just paperwork and limited options. Um, and so it wasn't until I did the Northern California Innocence Project at Santa Clara that I think really focused my studies um, and just got me really hooked on helping prisoners and being a part of the that area of criminal justice when you were attending university what what kind of uh what what benefit did you get from playing sports what do you think sports taught you and was it difficult to balance your academics and sports and how did you do that um i think it taught me a lot it was just um about being a good team player. Um, I was a captain for a couple years on, on both for volleyball and softball. It was a really small school. Um, so I think there already was a great sense of community, but in terms of sports, it just, you know, teach, teaches you about like showing up and proving things rather than, I don't know, expecting things from your teammates, just modeling it first. Um, and just having a common goal and everyone working really hard towards it together. I don't know. I think there's a lot of really good stuff that that comes from being an athlete and takes you out of being kind of self-absorbed. And how did you handle all the pressure that you had? Because you're playing sports and you're balancing academics. How, how were you able to handle that? Uh, youth. <laughs> I, I think I think it just, you know, it was young and fun. And I I still have, you know, all my best friends were people that I played sports with. That was the maid of honor in my wedding teammate. Um, and, and so it was just so much fun. It, I didn't even think about it being like an energy um, problem. And so what made you decide to go to law school? So you finished your you finished your degree. What made you decide to go to law school? Did you have a direction when you finished uh, college? So it was kind of my mentor in college. And his name is Abbas Milani. Um, I'm not sure if he's still running it, but he was running um, a center at Stanford now for um, Middle Eastern studies. But he's just like such a fantastic professor. Um, and he actually talked to me. I said, you know, I want to be a photojournalist. Um, and I want to document all these really difficult things that are happening around the world and write about it. And he's like, that's great, Katie, but how about you go to law school? You should probably become like a corporate attorney, make a bunch of money. And then once you have money, you'll be able to have the freedom to do all these like humanitarian things. And now looking back, I probably should have listened to him. Um, but, but he knew he wasn't going to sell me right then. So he just said, why don't you just go to law school? and and figured out the next three years what the best course is so he was really the person who convinced me what was your experience like in law school did you enjoy it was it a stressful experience and then like you said i would like to hear a little bit about how you said you got into the innocence project and how that kind of how did you find about that how did you find out about that program i actually hated it at first i was really disenchanted i think because i had such a good experience in school my whole life and then i went nothing against Santa Clara at all. It's a great school, but it was just, I was working full time during the day and then going to night school at night. Cause I wanted to do that. Um, and so there wasn't as much of like a camaraderie. I didn't know anyone there. Um, it just seemed like a lot of just memorizing like pointless information <laughs> in the beginning. Um, so I wasn't feeling passionate at all. 
And it wasn't really until I actually took the innocence project that I, it lit a fire under me to, to care about being at law school. And how did that happen? Did you, did somebody approach you or you just were looking for a clinic or you said, Hey, what is this? And I'm interested in doing this. How did that, how did that happen? It was just a class that was available. Um, and so I signed up for it for one semester. Linda Starr was running it back then. Um, I took it and I was just totally hooked. It was cool. They gave, they gave us as students just a couple cases that we could pick. And then they just let you run free on investigating it. Um, and then if you had anything viable to show for it, you were able to go meet the person and correspond with them. So that was really fun. I loved that. And I think I was only allowed to take it for a semester or maybe that's just the way it worked out. So I did that. And then for the remainder of my time there, I just volunteered still working on a case that I really believed in. So it was cool that they let you do that. So did, were you assigned case, like were these cold cases that they got from, from the county you were in and how, how did they, how did they choose these cases? So just from anyone writing, they, at least back then they divided it up um, between them and the, and the Southern California innocence project. So anyone who was convicted in a county from central to Northern California, um, their letters would be sent to the Northern California Innocence Project. Um, and then it would just go through kind of a administrative stages of like, okay, is this worth moving it on to the next round to the next round? And, and then once it did get there, then you would have full reign to kind of try to investigate their claims. And, and what is the Innocent Project? Do you know how it started? And were these particularly like specific types of crimes? These were, I, I assume, felony crimes. Yeah, um, I think it originated from Barry Sheck in New York, starting his Innocence Project. And then um, I think, I don't want to botch the history of it, but I think that's, um, and then Linda kind of, I think took over, um, was inspired by him. I don't know if it was directly connected to him, but they were able to get the get it coordinated through Santa Clara University. And it was such a smart model looking back that they were able to use you know, the diligence of law students for free to work on these cases, because obviously there's no money in it. <laughs> um, and now they've done a, and then they would do fundraising and things like that to get more attention. And they've won some really big cases. And so there were two attorneys who were at the head of it. And once it got to a point where it could actually get litigated, um, they would take on the case and they partner sometimes with some really big law firms who would help pro bono. Yeah, I think Gerald Allman was at your school. I think he was one of the people that was with with um, Barry Sheck, I believe, right? Yeah, he, yeah, I took a class from him, and you know, just because he was the OJ lawyer, I had to take his case or take his class. We all, I think, everybody was scrambling to get into that class. Yeah, I I read some of the briefs um, for the OJ case, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's an amazing professor. That he's just uh, just a super brilliant man. And so after you, you said you continued to stay involved, did that kind of light the fires for like your passion? Did you decide, you know what, this is what I want to do at that point? It did. And then I think the turning point after that was that I, their Santa Clara had classifieds. Um, 
I'm really aging myself now, right? Um, for for job opportunity. So what what's a classified? I'm confused. What is that? You have to explain to the audience because a lot of well, audience won't know what that is. So I know not the not the documents that are in the news. Just it was actually just job ads. Um, and there was this attorney, Katera Rutledge, who was looking for a law student to be a law clerk, and she does what what I do now. She was on the alternative public defender panel for Monterey County, but then she also was doing board of parole hearing work. Um, and so she, she was looking for a law clerk to help her with that. And I lived in Capitola at the time. So it was, I was like, Oh, this is great. It's local. It sounds interesting. Cause it still is related to prison um, work and she hired me out of a lot of applicants, she said, because I gave the most like unprofessional um, letter of all the applicants because mine was just really personal and everyone else's was way more professional. So she was like, all right, this girl could probably handle prison work. Um, and, and so I just, she was definitely huge and still is a mentor for me. And so that's what got me on this track. You know, Katie, uh, when I met you many years ago, one of the things I really was impressed by you is I remember you were working. Uh, you you certainly weren't rich from doing this kind of work. You could tell you were very passionate about it because I remember I, you were working on a case and you called me and I and you were actually inside. You were actually your office was a closet. <laughs> you were actually in a closet. And I and I, I was just taking that. I, you told me, hey, I'm in a small apartment and I have my offices in my actual closet. <laughs> And I remember just saying, when you first spoke with me, I was like, oh, man, what kind of attorney is she? Uh, but you're like one of the most passionate people I've ever met. And um, and I really, really appreciate you being here. I'm going to turn this over to my co-host today. He's got some other he's going to do a deep dive on on all this stuff. So uh, thank you. I appreciate it. And Paul, take it. It's, it's yours. So take it and run, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you know, Katie, I'm totally fascinated with your earlier experiences with the Innocence Project and then having those strong mentors in your life, um, maybe except for Drew Barrymore. I still haven't forgiven her for her role in E.T. We can see this culmination that's building up. You know, I'm curious about uh, what you learned from that initial mentor that you had uh, that shaped where you are today. Um, with, so Katera Rutledge? Yes. Um, she comes from a place of, of faith, actually. Um, she's, she's a Christian and she was really big on forgiveness and compassion. And that was something that was really um, surprising to me, right? In a new boss that this was, you know, something that I saw was really important to her. And she had this kind of faith-based um, approach to her work. And she's also, you know, tough as nails and a bulldog attorney. So it was a fun combination maybe reminded me of my dad how he had this dichotomy um and she just worked she she's a really hard worker um totally fearless of any type of authority figure she tells everybody how she sees it um so she was just really fun to work for and she was really she would be very hands-on teaching me practical things which was a huge difference from law school and then she also gave me a lot of freedom, you know, as a law student, she'd be like, go meet with this guy on your own and, and um, get your own impression of him and tell me about it later. So she, she had this really amazing way of prepping me for parole hearings when at that time there was absolutely no um, preparation from, 
you know, being state appointed, there was no training program or anything. So she trained me. Yeah, she was really instrumental then in getting to where you are right now. How do you explain to other lawyers what you do? Um, I usually, I usually just say I'm a, a parole attorney. Um, when I'm dealing with other attorneys, a lot of times it's through um, San Mateo County. They have a private defender program, um, which is their version of a public defender of a public defender's office there. And they use me to consult on anything post-conviction. Um, so I guess they look at me as a post-conviction consultant. Like if they have someone who's either facing a long term or just got sentenced to a life term, they'll hire me to go in and talk to their clients and give them advice on how they can get out at the earliest possible time. Gotcha. And when you're talking to non-attorneys, how do you describe what you do? Oh, I think I usually just say criminal defense because it just is easier for people to understand. <laughs> but you do more than criminal defense, isn't it? I guess it's just different. Um, and that's how I also can, you know, gain favor with people. I say, well, I do criminal defense, but it's mostly social work. <laughs> you know, I, um, I want you to geek out for a second because you're very much involved in the criminal justice space. We can recognize that, you know, for just watching the news, recognize that there's been a lot of reforms in recent years. What part of the criminal justice reform um, is working well right now? I think giving the nonviolent third strikers an earlier opportunity to get out of prison um, has been phenomenal. It's not coming to fruition yet for a number of complicated reasons. Um, but I think just people having that early opportunity for parole um, through laws that have allowed people who were under the age of 26 um, to come up sooner for parole hearings, um, the opportunity for resentencing for people who were given really lengthy terms for things like gang enhancements um, and gun enhancements and uh, who also were very young at the time. I think those reforms have been really impactful and also something that's not really in the news, um, but CDCR has changed their policy about putting really young people straight into the worst yards and the worst prisons and allowing them to kind of get overrides to get into better, uh, more programming uh, populations. I think that's made a huge difference for just the trajectory of people going into prison. Maybe along the same type of stream of thought, if you had a magic wand and you could change anything in the criminal justice system, uh, what would you change at the sentencing level? Oh gosh, um, at the sentencing level, I don't think I have enough expertise in it to make the best informed decision about it. Um, but I would say just giving um, judges more discretion. <laughs> what about at the facility level? Oh, where do I begin there? At the facility level, I would say building better connections and, and rapport and having a better, um, a better model of experts helping each other to improve prison conditions and prison policies. I mean, you give an example few minutes ago about CDCR and not putting kids into the worst yards. 
Is that in alignment with what you're describing now? It, it is. And then I think there's still just like, you know, a CDC moves like one inch in the right direction, then everyone thinks like they need to be applauded so much and there's still miles for them to go. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot more that needs to be done in those areas about being really just practical about what's going to help these people actually have a chance in the beginning of their incarceration before it's too late. Where, um, what describe your role in that continuum? Are you at the beginning side? Are you just coming in during parole hearings? Like, where are you working with the client? So, what I love about that San Mateo um, County, you know, when I get when I get any type of referrals from attorneys there, is that I get to start at the beginning. Sometimes my clients aren't as open at that point, but um, I've I've now been able to. I've been doing it long enough now where I've seen the difference. Where actually three of the people that I consulted in the beginning, they ended up getting out at their first hearing and they ended up having their hearing um, advanced quite a bit because of, I advised them on how to gain credits um, the most that they could. So they got out earlier and at their first chance, which was great. So I was able to talk to them before they ever even got into prison and it seemed to make a difference. Um, but, but for the great majority of the time, as a um, as an attorney for parolees coming up for their hearings, if I'm state appointed, I only get um, appointed to them six months before their hearing. I get their file five months before the hearing, so that's my my really short window to try to make a difference um, in their chances. For when I get hired privately, usually people hire me about one to one and a half years before their hearing, and that makes a big difference on what their experience has been in the prison system then I'm assuming. It does. And I think there's a, that's what makes a big difference too, between state appointed and private work that the more time you have with someone just, and I, I believe someone's even looked at the statistics that if you have a private attorney versus a state appointed attorney for a parole hearing, your chances are substantially higher of getting a parole grant. And those descriptions I'm, I'm getting the feeling that you work with a lot of different clients at different stages uh, within the process. How do you uh, mentally shift between clients? So that being when you're working with a bunch of clients all at the same time, there are different just stages within the legal system. How do you make those mental shifts? I think just experience and personality. I mean, well, so for example, I'm, I'm assigned to two different um, prisons for the state appointed panel. And one of them is the California Medical Facility. And that one's really challenging because there's a lot of people with severe mental illnesses. And there's also a lot of people with developmental disabilities um, where, you know, they can't read, they can't write. They sometimes pretend that they understand even the most basic concepts, but they're just kind of going along with you. Um, and I guess what I would say is the way you shift to all of them is like, I, I take it and I've done this before I was a mom. I like, and I mother all of them. Um, so, you know, you have to have a different approach with different kids. Like some of them are really angry when you first talk to them. And as long as, you know, you're being a good mom and you realize that they're coming from a hurt and not trusting you yet, you just kind of ease your way through that first meeting and then get to the next one. And then your next guy will be the easiest client ever on your state appointed panel. Um, and he's very smart and he's very prepared and he's done all these things on his own. But 
you still have to make sure you're not neglecting him as your kid. You know, you still got to support him and help him. So I guess that would be the only way I would describe the, the mental shift. You just have to make sure you're supporting and being understanding and being well-prepared with all of your clients, regardless of what their issues are. The way you're describing it, well, meeting people where they are reminds me of the idea of empathy. How do you get into an empathetic space with them of realizing that they're there for not good reasons, right? And you still represent them. How do you get into that empathy space with them of knowing what their history is? Um, it just comes naturally for me, I think. Um, and it's just been bolstered by experience that even when I'm like so disgusted or upset or angry about someone's crime, once I meet with them, you, you just are able to see that there's a human behind these terrible actions. And this is somebody's kid, somebody's brother, somebody's sister. Or, and then, you know, for some of them, they don't have any family or friends, so you can't really relate, you know, think about it in that sense. But it's just this is a human being who has value and deserves respect. Um, and, and a lot of times been so beaten down and so judged from everyone else that you have this really, I think, kind of sacred position as their attorney that you're the only person who shouldn't be doing that to them, <laughs> you know? And so I think it would be really sick of me to, to, to jump on that bandwagon when I'm the only person that kind of has been placed in front of to just look past all of that and try to find their humanity. I mean, there's a lot of different interpersonal skills that come into play when it happens of being able to represent them in that way. What did you, uh, what have you noticed about yourself working within those environments that have this huge stress associated with it? I don't, um, I mean, it can be, I can get really emotionally invested um, and get really upset after hearings. Um, you know, sometimes I just kind of like want to shut down after a long days of talking with people um, and not have serious conversations. I'll go home and watch The Real Housewives or something really mind numbing. Um but, you know, there's also just so much reward from working with my clients. There's so many people who are incredibly inspiring and have such strong um, character traits, you know, that they've developed just totally on their own in the worst of circumstances. And so I think wherever there's, it always seems like anytime I'm getting stressed and or have a difficult time, you know, with a case, there's always there's always another one right around the corner where someone's really going to uplift you. And, you know, a lot of my clients talk about the attitude of gratitude and that's something that affects me a lot. And I know if they're able to apply it, I certainly should be able to, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about you know, Martine's work and pulling us into this space with a podcast of getting us to think about the criminal justice system, maybe in a different way than what our initial, um, thoughts are might be or thoughts might be on it when you're talking about the idea of inspiration we don't necessarily think of people going through the system as people that we should be inspired by is there someone that um that you've had as a client you don't have to say their name but is there someone that you've had as a client and what is it about them that you find inspirational oh gosh so many i, I mean i could sit here and list a million of them and i'll name drop them um one would be Yusuf Wiley. He's my former client, which even seems silly to say now, um, you know, over 10 years ago. 
And I had met with him and he was in kind of this human bird cage at Avenal State Prison um, because they had a policy at that time where for any attorney visit, regardless that he was on a low level and had a really great prison record, um, they would only let you meet with people through that and you get kind of dizzy. They're tiny little holes through the cage. <laughs> so it's funny for me to look back at that time. And he, you know, I was just preparing him for his parole hearing and he was telling me of all of these really um, lofty, amazing ideas about start starting a nonprofit when he got out. Um, and I was like, all right, that's great, but let's just focus on the practical things of where you're going to live and how you're going to have a job when you get out um, and how you're going to talk to the parole board. And here he is today, and he's you know, a consultant um, for the county of Los Angeles. He has a nonprofit called Timelist, and there are a lot of formerly incarcerated men who work for him. They're helping at-risk youth. They're helping formerly incarcerated. They have county and state contracts um, in the millions of dollars that they've been awarded. And he is just such a person who just perseveres, has an absolutely golden heart and just works crazy. He also has a family um, that he was able to reunite with, had an, you know another child when he got out. Um, so he's someone that's Un unbelievably um, inspirational. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, that's a really good example, right? Because had the parole hearings not been set up and structured the way they are and you helping him um, reduce his sentence and, and re uh, get back into society, um, he would still be in there potentially, right? Depending on you know what, his, what the term of sentence was. And we think about, you know, how do we reintroduce people back into society um, to make them contributing members of society. I, I suspect you have lots of stories like that that comes into play. Tell me, um, tell me about the case on why it's important to have parole hearings the way they're structured right now. And what should we be thinking about um, or how should we be thinking about them in a different way? I think that the executive director of the board um, and her legal team have made really concerted efforts over the years to make the parole hearings more objective, more evidence-based, more understandable um, for all of the participants. So I think that's been really great to watch over the years. Um, of course, I want, you know, miles more achieved, but, um, you know, when I first started the grant rate, like 12 years ago, We have a slight glitch. We'll get her back on in a second. You know, Martine, when we get into the space on, you know, thinking about the parole hearings, can you walk us through on what a parole hearing looks like? Uh, so when she comes back on, we'll have a framework on what that means and looks like. The grant. Oh, can you guys oh, hear Katie, me? You're back. So Katie. So scratch that, Martine. We'll get Katie to answer that question. Uh, Katie, um, you're talking about um, the, um, the the rates of uh, parole hearings, and that's when you got cut off. So where were we 10 years ago? Where are we today with uh, those being granted? Yeah, so now I do think um, 
now we're at 30% for everyone who goes forward with the hearing. Um, so there's still a number of people who can waive their hearing or agree that they're not ready. So it doesn't encompass all of the people who are eligible, but for people who go forward with their hearing about 30% of them get granted parole. And so um, I think that, you know, certain court cases coming down and again, the executive director of the board and her legal team have, have really helped to facilitate a process where it's been more logical and evidence-based and that's resulted in more people being granted parole. Um, and, and I think that inmates are, you know, whenever you infuse hope and you infuse information, I think there's going to be good results and that's what's happened. People are more informed about what the board's expecting from them and they have a realistic chance of being granted parole. So it's worth taking those efforts. Um, in terms of what I think should change, I think there's still a massively um, overrated need for insight, for people to express insight at a hearing. Now, I'd probably be out of a job if insight wasn't a big deal at a hearing because that's most of my work. But I just find it really um, unfair and almost oppressive to expect these guys and women um, to come forward at a hearing when you're you know, you're treated as one in a big group. You're a guy in blue. You're your number. You're never even called by your name most of the time in prison. And everything is about you as a group. And then you're supposed to just magically come to a hearing. And everything is about, first of all, digging very deeply into your emotions and your rec in your self-awareness. And then you're also supposed to talk in such an individualized manner. And it's so foreign to so many of them. And, and I just... I don't think that there, there's anything to prove that there's such a strong correlation between someone having great self-awareness and someone being a reduced risk to society. I mean, that's just a huge mental shift, right? Where you're conditioned in this prison system uh, to be in this larger group and then have to think by yourself, for yourself, as you're building up your case on why you should get out. That's a huge shift. Uh, walk me through... Um, through a description on what does a parole hearing look like? Can you, what's it look like? Who's in a room? What's, what type of room are you in? Are you behind cages? Are you, what's it look like? So it's changed because of COVID. It used to be that for every hearing, there would be two commissioners, um, typically a district attorney. They're, they're invited from the County of commitment to every hearing. Um, they do have a limited role, but, and then it would be um, your attorney Everyone has a right to a state appointed attorney. And then you also can hire a private one if you can afford that. Um, and then two correctional officers who are usually, you know, falling asleep in the back. Um, and, and that is how they used to be held. Now there's a difference because of COVID they've switched to a video conferencing default where most, um, most lifers are having their hearings with both commissioners on video conference, which means that the, the the district attorney and any victims or victims next of kin also are on video. And then your attorney has the choice whether or not to be in person or on video conference with you. And the only time that the board has set their own policy to have their commissioners in person is if the person has um, severe developmental disabilities or some other issue that makes video conferencing communication ineffective. And how would you describe what the room feels like? Is it emotionally charged? Is it just get down to business? How would you describe what that feels like? 
It depends. I think it depends on the crime. It depends on how good of a candidate um, my client is, because of course, commissioners come in with a much better disposition when someone's, you know, coming in with no recent um, disciplinary behavior, they've been doing self-help programs, especially if they have a crime that's, you know, less violent in nature. Um, and then a, a huge part of the emotional feeling is whether or not there are either actual victims or victims, um, family members who are there, and whether they're very oppositional. Um, in some, you know, incredible cases, the victims actually either support parole or just say that they're not going to give a recommendation. Um, but when there are victims who are, are there who are very emotional and upset and very, you know, angry still towards my clients, it certainly sets a tone from the beginning, even though they're not actively participating until the end of the hearing. It certainly sets a very um, heavy tone. Yeah, I can see why that would be the case. In your role, when you're uh, building your case uh, for the parolee, uh, what, um, how would you describe the relationships involved, right? So you're identifying that commissioners being there, you're there, your clients there, potentially family members on the other side are there. How would you describe all those personalities and how that informs how you build up your case or present your case? Um, well, you know, when you have the benefit of someone having previous hearings, not the benefit to your client, <laughs> but with the benefit to me, if they have previous hearings, you can read through and see how they presented last time. You can also see how the victim's family members um, you know, how they express themselves in the previous hearing. And I'm a big believer in um, not coaching my clients. Um, the only ones I think that, you know, would be personally ethical for me to coach would be the guys who do have such severe developmental delays, but they, they can't retain my coaching. So coaching never works out. <laughs> um, so what I try to do is just get my clients to genuinely understand a different perspective um, because when they're under fire at, at maybe their previous hearing, it was hard for them to get, well, why were the commissioners, you know, going over this topic so many times with me in so many different ways, or, you know, why are the victims still so angry about this? And so I try to educate them on, well, this is where they could be coming from and give them analogies and, and try to make them understand, you know, why they presented the way that they did before and, and get them to really understand it. I just came on recognizing the humanness that's involved. You know, I know that as you're academically trained, right, through law schools, they're great about teaching you how to practice law. I don't know how much they spend on the relationship side of the house. How did you prepare for just a relationship, the human side of the work that you're doing? How did, how did you come about really formulating that? You know, maybe it was being a bartender through law school. <laughs> In a small dive bar where you hear a lot of stories. <laughs> Some people call that a counselor. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's just, you know, and I had certain, I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it is also playing sports and just get, having a, a really wide group of friends and just knowing how to relate to different types of people and come together regardless of anyone's kind of personality quirks just to achieve um, a difficult goal. Yeah, I mean, I fall back on, you know, how you described your dad on just a straight talk when he confronted the gang member, right, of describing the environment um, or 
talking about that team environment and showing up and uh, being able to to coach each other and work towards our common goal. I suspect some of those traits might be uh, coming into play on how you approach the, the situation. Now, what keeps you energized within the space? Why do you why do you do it? My clients, I mean, I have some who I've become like really close to, and it's actually a friendship that's way different even than like child, you know, friends that I've had since childhood because they've poured their hearts out um, under such challenging circumstances. And to be able to see them just really persevere and do well and then get out and have the normal happy lives that almost always are focused on, you know, helping the community um, and just they've had to go through that process of showing their self-awareness that I don't agree with. Um, and, and so because of that, they come out and do so well. So I think just really staying connected and becoming friends with, um, some of my former clients and then, um, and also again, just being really grateful that a lot of the stories that I hear that my clients went through in their childhoods and et cetera, they're so tragic. Um, and I had such a blessed life that I, I think a lot of times that just kind of energizes me that not that I owe anything, but it's just nice for me to be able to, you know, use the the strong foundation that I was just lucky to be born with and be able to help people who had the total opposite of that. Man, I love that. Hey, I want to ask you some fun questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> You're in the hot seat right now. What's your favorite movie? <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. And <laughs> uh, favorite food? Uh, I gotta go with Mexican. Uh, what specific dish or not? Probably enchiladas. What's on your kitchen counter right now that shouldn't be there? Probably a bunch of toys. <laughs> uh, finish the statement. When I'm daydreaming, I'm thinking about. Winning the lotto and starting a venture capital firm for former lifers. Nice. <laughs> Which new Olympic sport are you most likely to compete in? Breaking, sports climbing, skateboarding, or surfing? Oh, gosh. Wait, what were the initial ones? <laughs> Do you know if they break dancing is one of them? So breaking, sports climbing, skateboarding, or surfing? I would say break dancing because they'd give a pregnant lady a break and just give me a gold for pity. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I, I get, you know, the, the attitude of gratitude thing. It's something that's always stuck with me that I learned from um, Yusuf Wiley, who I talked about and a lot of my clients do it. I think that's the best advice I've ever gotten that no matter how upset you are, um, or how challenged you feel. If you just think about things that you're grateful for, it just puts you in a better mood. For people that are considering um, law as a future career practice, what advice do you have for them? Don't be an asshole. <laughs> I think that's a good life lesson. Thanks, Martine, for letting me uh, join in this conversation with Katie. Katie, it's been a true joy for me. I've learned so much. I'm taking pages of notes on my legal pad here. Well, thank you so much. I feel very honored to be interviewed by you. So thank you very much. I'm impressed with the work that you do. Thanks for doing it.
and, and thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it, Paul, for you, you know, taking the time. And it's, you know, from your other duties, you have a million other things you do at the university. So I appreciate you being here. Katie, I know you're, like I said, I know you're extremely busy. And I know you're very passionate about helping people. And um, you've done, done so much good in the world. And I am very appreciative. And for you coming on and kind of giving a different perspective than what, what most people hear. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I'll have to tell the guys who I, you know, talked about. <laughs> uh, hey, Katie, if somebody wants to get a hold of your services, um, how would they do that? Do you have a website? Do you have an email? What's the best way to get a hold of you? I don't have a website. I should. Um, the best way to get a hold of me would be by email, um, which is kgilbert12 at msn. Dot com. When you work in prison, you can't change your email. Um, and, and you can also look me up on the state bar website under Catherine Gilbert. And that gives all my information too. And Paul, if they wanted to, uh, I know you have these wonderful executive education classes that you, that you, that you're the, you're the man with when it comes to that. It, it, how would they get, how would they look up or get that information? Uh, emails best at D A N C Z Y K at USC.edu. Do you guys have a, a website as well, Paul? We're like Katie. Our websites are continually evolving, so I don't have one to toss out today. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, I hope you both have a wonderful weekend. Until next time, keep learning and uh, just keep doing wonderful things out there, everybody. Until next time. Thank you, Martine. You're the best. You guys. Thank you for everything. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.